scourge of ransomware attacks on the public sector, contact tracing goes live in Australia, and the leap to zero trust in the age of the remote worker. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. You might think that in the event of a global pandemic where literally everybody everywhere is at risk, that cybercriminals may show a little bit more empathy and consideration for their fellow human beings. And you'd be wrong. Not only are ransomware attacks showing no signs of a decrease in velocity, the average payout for an attack is increasing. And according to new research, prime targets are increasing in the public sector, including state and local governments, schools, and maybe the most perverse of all, hospitals. With the story, here's ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Ransomware continues to be a reliable moneymaker for criminals. In the first quarter of this year, the average ransom paid by victims to ransomware attackers reached more than $111,000, according to ransomware incident response firm Coveware. That amount represented an increase of 33% from the prior quarter. It was largely driven by attackers wielding Ryuk and Sodenokibi ransomware, Coveware says. After Sodenokibi and Ryuk, the most common ransomware infections that it investigated involved Phobos, Dharma, Mamba, and Globe Imposter. The industries being targeted by ransomware attackers have been shifting slightly. In the main, they continue to be small and mid-sized professional service firms, such as law firms, IT managed service providers, and certified public accountancies. But increasingly, attackers have also been gunning for public sector organizations, including state and local governments. Schools, however, are being particularly targeted. Indeed, about 1 in 20 infections investigated by Coveware in the first quarter of this year involves schools. Schools typically get targeted in the summertime, when they're under pressure to get their systems back up and running before students return. With the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, however, schools appear to be an especially attractive target for attackers as students study remotely. The healthcare sector is also not immune. Some ransomware operators had pledged to not target healthcare organizations or to provide them with free decryptors if they got hit. But Coveware reports that the average downtime following any successful ransomware infection is about 15 days. So, even if attackers were honoring their promises to provide free decryptors, they'd still be causing dangerous disruptions, not to mention continuing to hit essential supply chains. Unfortunately, some groups appear to be actively targeting hospitals, and especially attackers wielding Ryuk, Doppelpamer, and Defray 777 ransomware. Another trend we've been seeing in recent months is ransomware operators stealing data and threatening to leak it unless victims pay. The Maze Group first blazed this trail late last year, and 99% of its cases involved data exfiltration, Coveware says. More recently, however, it's found that the gang's been changing tactics to target smaller businesses and exfiltrating less data. Following in Maze's footsteps, however, some other gangs have been using this data exfiltration tactic in recent months, including Sodonokibi, Doppelpamer, Mezpinoza, Netwalker, Klopp, Nephilim, and Sekbent. Some have dedicated sites where they'll attempt to name and shame victims and post extracts of stolen data. 
others send excerpts of the data directly to victims. In an interview, Coveware CEO Bill Siegel told me that it's still not clear if this data exfiltration strategy leads to more frequent payments to attackers. But he did tell me that he doesn't think it leads to higher payments. Looking at the bigger picture, when it comes to paying a ransom to attackers for the promise of a decryption tool, law enforcement agencies and security experts agree, don't do it. Paying a ransom directly funds cybercrime. Also, if attackers do share a decryption tool, it's not always effective. That's just one reason why experts recommend that all organizations have in place the right defenses, including well-tested backup and recovery systems, to ensure that they never have to pay a ransom. But as ransomware-wielding attackers continue to accumulate a massive number of new victims, it's obvious that not everyone has the right defenses in place or the time to try and restore their systems. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. As we discussed in last week's podcast, contact tracing for COVID-19 exposure could be an incredibly powerful tool in monitoring and mitigating the spread of the disease. However, tracking the exposure of infected individuals using smartphones, either overtly or covertly, could be considered a significant infringement of personal privacy rights. The Australian government has recently released such an app, and while its early days of use is seeing significant traction with the general public. With more on the story, is ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Cook. This week, the Australian government released a contact tracing app called COVID Safe. The nation joins a handful of countries seeking a hopeful path out of lockdown through technology. Privacy experts and programmers have been giving COVID Safe a workover, or at least as much as possible without its source code. COVID Safe isn't perfect, but it isn't necessarily terrible either. Understanding why plunges us into what is shaping up to be a privacy and security debate like no other. Can contact tracing apps blunt the speed of a pandemic, and what slivers of privacy are we giving up? Australia's program has many positive aspects. It's not mandatory to use it. Also, the government has prevented employers from making its use mandatory as a condition for coming back to work. COVID-SAFE doesn't collect precise GPS location data. Rather, it's a proximity detector. It uses Bluetooth to detect other phones in range. If two people come within 1.5 meters of each other for longer than 15 minutes, that is regarded as a contact and is logged. If someone is diagnosed with COVID-19, that person voluntarily uploads their contacts to local public health officials who then call those contacts. Neither the infected person nor the contact learn the identity of each other. But Australia's system is a centralized model. The contact data from people's phones goes into a national data store hosted on AWS. Although that's off limits to anyone but local health officials, those officials, or someone who has access to it, could see if two people have interacted. They wouldn't know where the contact occurred, but even seeing who a person has been near could be as revealing as where that happened. At a code level, experts have found potential privacy issues. 
For example, when contact data is exchanged, that is encrypted, but a person's phone model is not. It means that an attacker with physical access to a phone and the ability to crack open the app logs could see that information, which could be revealing. Now that's an advanced attack scenario, but it was also enough for Australia's peak body for domestic violence to issue an advisory about it. The alternative is a decentralized model, which Germany has pivoted to and Ireland will use. It's also supported by Apple and Google's joint project. In a decentralized setup, contact matching is done on the phone and no central authority has access to data. If Australia had opted for a decentralized model, it would have rendered moot the concerns that the police could use the system for other purposes. As it stands, Australia has pledged to pass new laws to prevent non-health agencies from using the data. If Australia had gone with a decentralized model in the first place, that wouldn't be necessary. Many commentators have rightfully expressed concern that the app was rushed out before those controls were in place. Stacked against other initiatives, the drawbacks of Australia's system do feel less scary. A state in India has an app that uses GPS data to detect if someone in quarantine has strayed too far from their home. South Korea is using GPS, credit card data, and CCTV footage for tracing. I've downloaded COVID Safe. For me, the benefit of winding back the daily restrictions is more appealing than the risks right now of anyone knowing who I've been around. But that's not to dismiss the concerns of privacy experts with COVID Safe. We need their deep examinations to know every point of risk, however fine. Everyone's tolerance for risk varies according to their personal circumstances, and we all must respect that. In the end, epidemiologists may find that automated contact tracing just doesn't work that well. If that's the conclusion, let's hope we haven't opened a new door to surveillance that will never be closed. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, the shift to a remote workforce has been something of an accelerant for many organizations that have already been in the process of implementing a digital transformation roadmap. But all companies are different, and some have fared better than others in this transition. ISW's managing editor of Newsdesk, Scott Ferguson, spoke this week with Jim Reavis, CEO of the Cloud Security Alliance, about what his members are experiencing with the recent work-from-home transition and the explosion of software-defined perimeter and zero trust. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. Oh, zero trust is is huge now. The members are talking about the lot. And so so software-defined perimeter and zero trust, which are very complementary, some some real overlap there. Um, software-defined perimeter allows you to sort of take in a some some public cloud and turn it into a virtual private cloud, a, a, some call it a black cloud that only your organization can see. And, uh, you know, Zero Trust provides that ability to just, you know, really be very granular and not um, allow anything to have access uh, to to your key assets unless you're, you specifically identify and identity management becomes a big part of it. So there's, there's, it's blowing up. There's a lot more interest to, to do that. They, the, um, the issue is some applications, I'd, I'd say if you look at the very, you know, common SaaS applications, the well-known, you know, pick say the top hundred applications, it's pretty out of the box to go implement that. Some of the, the issues we've seen in this, just this rush is that, a lot of um, custom built applications that enterprises have done in infrastructure as a service 
it takes a little more work, a little more knowledge to um, make sure that they have um, um, protected in the right way. There's some tweaking they need to do and some policies and things like that. So the very popular SaaS applications, enterprise SaaS applications, I'm, I'm thinking of for the most part, they've been able to put on that zero trust layer pretty well. The infrastructure as a service, it just, it's, it takes some time. The organizations that really already had this designed, they've done pretty well and they've had a lot less hiccups um, so far. That's it for this week's ISMG security report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Collins. Catch you next time. Thank you.